0: is alive today because he is alive in my heart amen I have felt him I have sensed him I have heard from him and I'm thankful that he's alive today amen all right grab your copy of the word of God if you will please and turn with me to the gospel of John chapter number 20 John's gospel chapter number 20 and uh, we have been preaching through the gospel of John for several weeks now and uh, we are thankful that the Lord is Allowed us to work things out to where we could land in chapter 20 for this Easter morning. It worked out perfect and we're so thankful for that. And uh, had no idea when we started in the Gospel of John all those months ago that we would land here this morning, but God just kind of orchestrated that. And we're glad for it, John chapter 20. And I want to begin reading in verse number 1. And I'll read probably more verses than I normally do, but it's such a good story. I, I couldn't figure out a place to stop, so we'll read verse 1 down through verse 18, and then we'll, we'll pray together and then give you our thoughts, okay? The Bible says in verse number 1, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And went in also that other disciple and that came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And seeing two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. They said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if 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 thou have borne him hence, tell me, where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say Master. And he, Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, and say unto them, I have ascended to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. Father, add Your blessings to the Word of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, and amen. On our Sunday mornings, as I just mentioned, here at the church, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. I made the comment a few weeks ago, I'll say it again this morning, in the closing chapters of John's Gospel, Uh, We see man at his very worst, and we see God at his very best. This is certainly true of John chapter 19 and chapter number 20. In John chapter 19, they lead the Lord of life to the place of death. The innocent Lamb of God is hung between two criminals outside of the city of Jerusalem. He is crucified for a crime that He was not guilty of. It was John Phillips that one time wrote about crucifixion and said this. He said everything about crucifixion was horrible. The excruciating pain, the unnatural position, the prolonged agony, sometimes dragging on for days. The heat, the thirst, the flies, the nakedness, the shame. And men did this to their Maker. Certainly, this is man at his worst. This morning, however, we are not here because of a man nailed to a cross. But we are here because of an empty tomb. This is Easter Sunday. We know that what happened on the cross was not the end of the story. The gospel does not end with a dying man on a cross, but it it tells of a risen Savior. The same man that died on the cross arose from the cross three days later. And He is alive this morning. He arose to live forever. Amen. Over the past few weeks we have been looking at the story in John 18 and 19 and again today in 20 through the characters, the cast of characters that surround the story. A couple of weeks ago we uh, preached out of John 18 and focused on Judas and Peter. How our Lord was betrayed in the garden and how that even His closest disciples turned their back on Him. Last Sunday, we looked at John 19 through the characters of Calvary, and we talked about Caiaphas and Annas. We talked about Pilate and Jesus. And this morning, I want to do that one more time. I want to preach for a few minutes on this thought, the characters of the resurrection. The characters of the resurrection. I think through these characters, we can help tell the story. And really... That's all I want to do today. I just want to tell you the story. If we find some preach along the way, we'll hit it and move on. But I want to tell you the story this morning. The first characters that I want you to pay attention to are Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph and Nicodemus. And these characters are important because they tell us the story of the burial. They tell us the story of the burial. Back up one chapter with me into chapter... Nineteen and look at verse number 38. The Bible said, And after this, speaking of after Jesus' death, after He gives up the ghost, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. And he came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pound weight, and took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never a man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. When Jesus gets to those closing hours of His earthly life, the Bible tells us that two kindnesses are done unto Him. Interestingly enough, the first kindness is done by the Roman soldiers standing near the cross. When the moment of death approaches, Jesus knows that all things have been fulfilled. According to Psalms chapter 22 verse 16, He would be crucified through His hands and feet. And that had been done. According to Psalm 22 8, He would be mocked and ridiculed and made fun of. And they had done that using the very words that the psalmist prophesied that they would use. According to Psalms 22:18, they would gamble for his garments, and the four Roman soldiers did that at the foot of the cross. According to Psalms 22 verse one, he would be forsaken by his father, and there, in those hours of darkness, he cried, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" All things had been done except for one. Psalm 69:21 said that the dying Messiah would cry from His cross, I thirst. And so Jesus, knowing that all things but this one thing had been accomplished, spoke those words and He said, I thirst. Hearing that, the Roman soldiers take a sponge, fill it with vinegar, and raise it to His lips. All things were now complete. All things were now done. The work that God had given Him was completely finished. And so Jesus speaks Those final and famous words, it is finished. The work was done. There was an act of kindness by by those Roman soldiers. But the second act of kindness is done by two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Certainly, the malice and the hatred of the Jews at this point is still great. We know Jesus has been crucified. But we also know that the Jews are so cruel that they would go to someone like Pilate and begin to ask some cruel things. For example, they said, Pilate, if you would, would you send your Roman soldiers and break the legs of the prisoners hanging on the crosses because Passover is coming and we want them to die quickly. Now you just imagine with me, a man on a cross, having been beaten, having been nailed to a tree, a man that is suffocating to death, that was not good enough for them. They were cruel enough to say, break their legs. We want them to die, and we want them to die quickly. Can you imagine if they were that cruel to request Jesus not only be crucified, but his legs be broken, then can you imagine what they would have done to his body after crucifixion? Boy, I don't know what they would have done, but I can only imagine they probably probably would have taken the Savior's body and dumped it into a common grave. Or worse yet, they would have taken Jesus' body into the garbage pit of Gehenna and burned it there as they did other criminals. But God was not going to allow that to happen. God would not allow them to break his legs, and he would not allow them to touch his son's body. God would not allow it to happen because it was finished. And from this point forward, God would only allow loving hands to touch his Savior, to touch his son's body. He would not let the Jews have Him. He would not let the Jews desecrate Him. Instead, He had two secret disciples that stepped forward and took the Savior's body. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was an honorable man. He was a just man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. A powerful man. Because of Joseph's position... He had remained a secret follower of Christ for some time. We don't know when Joseph became a believer, but we know at some point he had become a believer. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them they testify of Me. And I believe Joseph did just that. He searched the Scriptures, realized that this was him, and became a follower of Jesus. But when Jesus dies on the cross... Joseph can no longer be a secret disciple. He knows that he must step forward, and he knows that he must come out of hiding. Because of his position, he could go to Pilate. Because of his position, he could ask for the body of Jesus. Pilate probably would not have heard from Peter or James or John. Pilate would not have agreed to give the body to Thomas or Andrew or Bartholomew. But there was a powerful man. There was a high-ranking man. There was a secret follower that could get access to Pilate that could ask for the body of Jesus. And Joseph knew his time had come. And he steps out of the shadows and he begs for the body of the Savior. Soon after... Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. He is joined by Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus. We've met Nicodemus before. John tells us this was the same Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night in John chapter number 3. Again, we don't know when he became a follower of Christ, but we know that he did. And like Joseph had remained in secret. As as, As soon as Joseph... As for the body, Nicodemus steps out of the shadows and joins him. Think about this. When these two men received the body of Jesus from the Roman soldiers, carried him to the tomb, touched his body and anointed it with spices and linen cloths, immediately those two men become ritually and ceremonially unclean. That meant, Brother Wally, that they could not take the Passover In a couple days. But these men were not worried about taking the Passover. They had met the Passover lamb. They had come in contact with the real Passover. So the ceremony meant nothing to them. Let me point out a couple things that are interesting to me. I've never noticed these before. First of all, let me point out the fact that Nicodemus, the Bible says, comes to the burying place. To help Joseph. And when he does, he brings a hundred pounds of very costly ointments and spices for them to use to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, I've got a question for you. Nicodemus intended on Jesus being buried like a king. He intended to lavish upon him the most expensive ointments, the most expensive spices, and wrap his body in the most expensive linen cloth. Again, I quote from John Phillips. He said, it was prepared, speaking of Jesus' body, it was prepared for burial with all the care and the protection that love could suggest or that wealth could provide. We can be sure that many a tear was shed over those terrible wounds that covered the beloved form. At last it was done. Rich, rich swathings, not the rags of the rabbis, were used uh, as on criminals. They hid the tortured body from mortal eyes. The aromic fragrance and spices filled the air. It was enough for now. More could be done later once the Sabbath was over. Let me ask you a question. The Bible says that Nicodemus brings a hundred pounds of costly ointment to prepare the body of Jesus. Where did Nicodemus get on such quick notice a hundred pounds of costly ointment? The markets would not have been available at this time. This was Passover. They could not have gone to the markets and bought 100 pounds of spices on that short of a notice. And I don't think a man just has 100 pounds of spices laying around. Where did he get those? Think about that with a minute, and I'll come back to it. But secondly, let me point another thing out that's interesting to me. Let me point out this garden tomb that Joseph owned. Near where Jesus was crucified, which means it was outside of the city. Near where places of crucifixion took place. The Bible says there's a garden. And in that garden is a tomb that no man has ever laid in before. I want to know where Nicodemus got the hundred pounds of spices. And I want to know why did Joseph own that tomb? He so said, what Joseph was planning on being buried in? it. I don't think so. I don't think so, friend. Joseph was wealthy enough and powerful enough that he would have been buried in a more honorable position than that. He would have been buried somewhere where honorable men were buried, not near where crucifixions took place. Where you could hear the screams of the dying victims, the cursing of the Roman soldiers joseph never would have been buried there but yet at some point he bought a tomb and had it hewed out can i just float something by you and you don't have to believe this or not but i think i do i but. I have preached for years that there was only one person that knew Jesus was going to be crucified and rise again, and that was Mary of Bethany. But I submit to you this morning that there was two other men that had heard and realized and knew. I submit to you that Nicodemus knew Jesus was going to die and he had brought those spices in preparation For his death, I submit to you that Joseph knew Jesus would die. He had maybe even read Isaiah 53 where Isaiah prophesied that in his death he would be buried with the wicked and with the the, the, the rich men in his death. And I believe he bought that tomb for this very purpose. In fact, I wonder, I'm really stretching things here. But I wonder, I wonder if Joseph and Nicodemus weren't hiding in that tomb as Jesus was crucified on Calvary. And I wonder, I wonder when they heard the words, it is finished. They knew it was time. And Joseph and Nicodemus come out of that tomb. Joseph goes and asks for the body of Jesus. He brings it back to where Nicodemus is waiting for him. And they hastily prepare the body of Jesus. There in the tomb laid the Son of God. Surrounded by the linen. Surrounded by the fragrance. Surrounded by the darkness. Shut off from the noise of the world, he laid... They're in silence. Outside the world kept on spinning when the Creator was laid to rest. Joseph and Nicodemus tell the story of the burial. Number two, Peter and John, they tell the story of the resurrection. They tell the story of the resurrection. Look at verse number one of chapter 20, please. In the first day of the week, cometh Mary Magdalene early. When it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, we believe to be John, to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. If the story of Jesus was just a biography, then it would have ended in chapter number 19. Most biographies end with the subject's death. The story of Jesus isn't a biography, however. It picks up the next day, or early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. The resurrection story begins with a woman. A woman whose love for Jesus was the most important thing in her life. A woman whose love for Jesus would not let her sleep. A woman whose love for Jesus brought her and drew her to a tomb. Early Sunday morning. She was alone. It was dark. This was a graveyard. (laughs) But she was not afraid. She had to be near where Jesus was buried. And if she wasn't afraid, then I do believe she was surprised when she got there. Because when she got there, she discovered the seal had been broken, the stone was rolled away, and the soldiers were missing. I can only picture Mary as she runs as fast as her legs would carry her. She has got to find somebody and tell them what she's seen. She knows where John is staying, and obviously Peter has found him at this point and is staying there too. And she goes to John and to Peter, and she tells them the only thing that made sense in her head as she ran to find them. The story she has decided and settled on is they have stole his body and we've got to find him. Hearing the news, Peter and John rush from the place where they were. They head to the sepulcher. John was a little more agile than Peter and he gets there first. John begins to view the environment. He stoops down and looks inside but he doesn't go in. But Peter has never been bashful and Peter has never stopped to think about anything. And so when Peter gets there, he pushes John out of the way and rushes on into the sepulcher. He has got to see for himself. As the two men look around, they can tell something's not right. The body is missing. It has obviously been taken. But there is no signs of grave, grave robbery, no signs of desecration. In fact, the linen cloths that they had wrapped around his body, anointed with spices that would have molded and stuck together by this point, they were still laying there intact. There was no grave robber that had torn that body apart. And why would a grave robber even bother to take the body out of the linen cloths? Wouldn't they have just taken it all But it is laying there intact, formed like a human body. It is almost like the body just come up through those grave cloths. And they begin to look in the script, they begin to look in the sepulchre. They begin to try to figure out what has happened. And this amazes me. It amazes me that the Bible says that they see all of this. And they still struggle to figure out what's going on. Jesus has told them on multiple occasions that this very thing's going to happen. He told them at one time, He said, tear this temple down. And in three days I'll rebuild it. He said once, He said, I will give you one sign and one sign only. It's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I I think these guys could have counted to three, don't you? He said in John chapter number 10, He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. My Father has loved me and in the fact that He has loved me He has given me power to lay down my life but He's given me the same power to take it back up again. In fact, He plainly said in Matthew 16, 21 He said from that time forth Jesus began to show His disciples how He must go to Jerusalem. How He must suffer things at the hand of the chief priests uh, uh, elders and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He actually said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm getting up. And they still can't figure it out. The evidence was there. The teaching had been given. These men had already witnessed three resurrections in the time they had been following Jesus. All of it, was there, all they had to do was connect the dots. But according to verse number 9, the Bible says, For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that He must rise again from the dead. They're struggling with it. but While they're struggling, something happens in the heart of one of the disciples. Verse number 8 says, Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and marked these words, and he saw And believed. When John finally enters the tomb, he sees the grave cloths. He considers the fact that there is no vandalism. And something in his heart testifies. He is alive. Then and there, John believed Jesus had risen from that grave. There are many questions surrounding the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people question whether Jesus really died. I've read speculations where people have said that Jesus did not die. He just passed out on the cross because of the excruciating pain. They thought that He was dead. They took Him down, put Him in that tomb, and He woke up sometime later. <laughs> Nonsense. They spread a rumor the the chief priest spread a rumor in this day that the disciples had come and stolen the body of Jesus. Hogwash. Many today even claim that this story was made up centuries ago by silly, absent-minded people. But I submit to you this morning that John would testify to us that he saw it, he experienced it, it was real, he's alive, he got up just like he said he would. More proofs would come, but John didn't need them. John saw the empty tomb and that was enough. Jesus was alive. Can I say to us this morning, the fact that Jesus is alive, that is why we are here doing what we are doing. We serve our risen Savior. He's in the world today. He's alive this morning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there was no resurrection from the dead, then there would be no salvation of the soul. If there was no resurrection of the dead, there would be no forgiveness of sin. If there was no resurrection of the dead, we would all be on our way to hell. But thank God, three days after Calvary, He got up. And because He got up, we have forgiveness, we have salvation, and we have a blessed hope. He's alive and we will be alive with Him. Joseph and Nicodemus tell us the story of a burial. Peter and John tell us the story. The burial was not the end. There was a resurrection. Let me move quickly. Number three, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene tells the story of the ascension. Mary Magdalene tells the story of the ascension. Let's pick up again in chapter 20, this time verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And see Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus was laid. Time out. This is not in my message. But isn't it interesting that those two angels sit there at the head and the foot of where Jesus was laying? What a beautiful picture of those two cherubim in that most holy place that overshadowed and overlooked where the blood was placed on the mercy seat every year, where the innocent lamb shed his blood and God offered forgiveness to mankind. And those cherubim overshadowed that. And Mary looks in there and there's two angels sitting at the head and the foot just like those cherubims did in that mercy seat on the place where Jesus had laid. And they said to her, Woman, why, why weepest thou? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Having seen the empty tomb... The grave cloths, the evidence, the two disciples, Peter and John, turn and they begin to leave. I can only imagine that they could not wait to tell the other disciples. They wanted to go over the facts. They wanted to share their feelings. So they had to go get the others and tell them. But what they missed that day by not sticking around. Oh, what they missed that day. John tells us though that Mary decides to stay. She is still not convinced that someone hasn't stole his body. She's seen the same evidence the disciples have seen, but she's not come to the same conclusion yet. She believes someone has stole his body. She is so overcome with grief that all she can do is stand at the tomb and weep. But I'm so thankful that Proverbs eight seventeen says, I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. She stood there weeping and said, I've got to find him early in the morning. He said, I'm going to show myself to her. Someone once wrote, the world should have been there with its homage. Caesar should have come from Rome. The wise men of Athens should have been there. Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin should have been there. People from the far-flung Jewish diaspora should have been there, along with Herod and his men of war. Pilate and his wife should have been there. The disciples should have been there, an eager, welcoming body. The roads to Jerusalem should have been crowded with pilgrims. All Jerusalem should have been there with triumphant palms. But instead, a few women came. Two disciples come, and they've already run away. And the only one left is a woman, and she's weeping. Oh, but I'm thankful again that Psalms chapter 30, verse number 5 says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. As Mary is weeping, God decides He's going to let her see the two angels that have come to visit that tomb. God rolls back the curtain between this world and that world, and she sees two angels. Someone might have questioned why these two angels didn't try to comfort her. They comforted others. They said, why are you weeping? She said, I'm looking for His body and I can't find it. Why didn't they say He's risen? That's what they said to others. I believe the reason they didn't try to comfort her is because they saw one standing behind her. He was there. She just hadn't seen Him yet. When she does see Him, she is so emotional... She doesn't even recognize who he is. Through the sun coming up over the horizon and the tears in her eyes, she doesn't even recognize him. Thinks he's the gardener and asks if he's taken the body or if he knows where it's at. We can hear Jesus say, Woman, why are you weeping? Those tears touched his heart. In fact, I believe it was those tears that caused him to reveal himself that day. This is the same Jesus that stood outside the tomb of Lazarus when He died, and Mary was at His feet, and Mary is weeping. The Bible gives us a verse with only two words in it, and it says Jesus wept. He was so overcome with the emotion that Mary felt that He wept when she wept. And now He is so overcome when Mary Magdalene weeps at this sepulchre Her sobs have reached the Master. And in love, He has to reveal Himself to her. He adds, who are you looking for? She blurts out between the tears and the sobs. She's looking for her Lord. She just doesn't know where He is. Jesus simply cannot contain Himself any longer. And so He speaks one word. He speaks one word that changed her life. He speaks one word that turned her despair into delight. Mary. Oh, I gotta take another time out right here. I'm so thankful that God is able to come to us in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our depression, in the midst of our doubts. She's still doubting. He's able to come to us in the midst of our doubts. And He can say one word and turn our despair into delight. I'm so thankful that one word from the Master can change everything. I was sitting at my little desk in my living room this week and I was studying for this Sunday morning and I come across this passage of Scripture. And that passage where it said that He just spoke that one word and it was almost like the Master spoke my name. If I had hair on my head, it was standing up. There was cold chills all over my body and tears in my eyes. I'm glad that one word from the Master can change everything. And when he spoke one, when he spoke one word, Brother Scott, she just spoke one word too. He said, Mary. She said, Master. Rabboni. Teacher. Master. Both of them just spoke one word but both of them spoke volumes. (laughs) There was nothing else needed to be said. (laughs) He said her name. (laughs) She said, Master. Hmm. Just one word (laughs) changed everything. Just one word from both of them told the whole story. (laughs) He knew what she was feeling. He could sense it. Mary. And oh, when she heard that name, it turned her heart around. She no longer questioned where he was. She knew where he was. That was him. Nobody had ever said her name like he had said her name. That was him, Master. And obviously, not only does she say Master, she throws herself at his feet and wraps her arms around his legs. And if it was up to Mary, she never would have let him go. She would have stayed right there in that garden forever. With her arms around His feet. Master. Teacher. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows they can't stay in that garden. He has to go back to His Father. The interactions that He had had with His followers while He was upon the earth. All that had to end now. That had to change. He couldn't stay there with her. He couldn't stay with his disciples. He had to go back to his father. Mary, let me go. I've got to go back to my father. But here's what I want you to do, Mary. I want you to go tell my disciples that you have seen me, that I am alive. Go tell them what you have seen today. It's interesting, as far as I can understand, on the day after Passover, it was customary for the Jewish high priest to step outside of the temple and take a sheaf in his hand and begin to wave that sheaf be- before the Lord. And as he waved that sheaf, he was symbolizing the beginning of first fruits, And he would wave that sheaf before the people. Jesus said to Mary, He said, Mary, I'm going back to my Father. Go tell him, I'm going back to my Father. And somewhere over the hill, a Jewish priest started waving a sheaf, symbolizing the beginning of first fruits. And as he did, Jesus ascended back to his father, presented that blood on the mercy seat. But what's interesting is Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, he said, But every man in his own order, speaking of the resurrection, Christ the first fruits. Afterward they that are Christ his coming. You know what Paul said? Paul said Jesus resurrected and become the first of the resurrected from the dead. I believe that it was at this time that the dead in the graves also got up out of the graves walked about the city according to I believe it was the gospel of Matthew walked about the city. He led captivity captive according to the book of Ephesians and he took those saints from the heart of the earth into the presence of God and he was the first fruits but if there's first fruits that means there's going to be more and Paul said because he was the first fruits there'll be many that go back with him at his coming oh yes the fact that he ascended tells us that he will come again and when he comes we're going to go back with him let me give you this last of all and I'm not going to preach here. I'm just going to mention it and I'm done. Number four, I see Thomas. And Thomas tells the story of faith. Thomas tells the story of faith. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, that word Didymus means twin, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. The Lord has appeared to them. They were in a closed room. He appeared to them. With the door shut, they're now testifying to Thomas. Thomas says in verse 25, Except I see his hands and the print of the nails. Put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were with him, within. Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach thither thy finger and behold my hands." Reach thither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. I'm not going to preach this because I might want to deal with Thomas more next week. I do, however, want to point this out. Thomas refused to believe unless he had physical proof that Jesus was alive. Hearing the testimony of another was not enough for Thomas. All the evidence was not enough for Thomas. He had to see to believe. Everything I've said to you this morning is for one purpose and one purpose only. So that you might believe. I'm not talking about believing the physical evidence. Although there is physical evidence. You can go to Jerusalem today... And they will take you on a tour of that garden. They will take you to the tomb. And you can look inside for yourself. And you know what you will not find? You will not find any bones. Jesus is not in that tomb. The physical evidence, it's there. I'm not asking you to believe the historical evidence. Although there's historical evidence. We have a record that has been kept. I have historical evidence. History tells the story of a man named Jesus. There's no denying that Jesus lived. He was seen of Peter and John and Mary and the other women. He was seen of Paul. In fact, Paul said that at one time he was seen of over 500 witnesses. Oh, there's physical proof that he's alive. There is historical proof. That He is alive. But I'm not asking you to believe either one of those things. I'm asking you to display saving faith. And believe that He's alive. I am asking you, do you believe in your heart that Jesus died, was buried, and three days later got up out of that grave? You see, I don't need the physical evidence. Nor do I need the historical record. Although I am thankful for both. I have believed for myself. I have the witness in myself. I believe He's alive. Amen. And I hope you believe as well. Brother Scott's coming with a song. Let me ask you this. Have you... played?